You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to amazing episode uh, 140 of the Apple Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Victor, and joining me is Daniel Aaron Dilcher. Hi, from San Francisco. Welcome. It's a beautiful day here. <laughs> Tell me about this iPhone 8. So I got the iPhone 8 thinking it was going to be the moderate improvement of the existing 7. Uh, the standout features are actually kind of similar to iPhone 10. You have the similar cameras, except at least on the back, and the same chip. So a lot of the kind of super new stuff that Apple developed for the 10 is also part of the 8. So it gives you a, a uh, alternative way to get into Apple's technology without either being on the cutting edge of price or the cutting edge of um, things having changed. I think we kind of discussed that before. Or the cutting edge of wait times. Yeah, it looks like the 10 is going to have a harder, it's going to be harder to get. So in, instead of it being just yet another iPhone, what is it really to you? Well, in a lot of ways, it is like the new iPhone. I mean, it's it's very similar in uh, how you use it. I mean, it's identical. But the things that are different are kind of wearing off all the things that are difficult to do on an existing iPhone, um, specifically to with the camera. Uh, one of the hardest things to take pictures of is in the light photography. And I'm noticing, I mean, I was trying to take a lot of pictures back and forth between my 7 Plus and my 8 Plus. And the biggest thing that I notice is uh, low light. Because in if you have bright light, there's less of a difference uh, in terms of just taking photos. You really notice that when you're taking low light photos, it does a much better job of balancing what's the, the exposure across the uh, scene that you're taking. One of the examples in the review that I did, if you just hold up a phone and try to take a picture of something, a lot of times it will balance it out to the point where any bright lights are too bright and the dark areas are sort of visible. But if you focus on... If you tap to focus the exposure on the bright area, it makes everything else too dark. And just the faster brains of the eight have a much better job, do a much better job of balancing that out. So you can say, I want to focus on this, but I want to keep everything else together. And that's particularly noticeable when you use the flash, because the flash goes from being, I almost never use a flash on a mobile camera because it's typically so, um, it's so bright that it blows out things and it's kind of an unflattering lightness. Yeah, it's, it's uncontrollable. The, yeah, because the front is so bright, it also makes everything else in the background just fade to black. And the new flash on the 8 does a sort of a test strobe, and then it does an actual strobe where it does a combination of what, what they're calling slow sync, where they use less flash, but they also slow down the exposure or um, at the shutter, as I, as I recall. And that gives you a couple things. One, it does much more natural flattering lighting. So you don't have you know, the kind of washed out kind of death look of flash. And it also does a much better job of not having huge lens flares if you have glasses or if you have any piece of glass anywhere. A lot of times shooting a flash will just light that up. So that makes a big difference in being able to use flash. And then also it, it keeps the background from being completely just falling into darkness because the front is so, so bright. And so you can do things like taking a photo in the dark. Uh, I took a couple of friends up to uh, Twin Peaks, which is a lookout over San Francisco. And you have this, you know, field of lights in the background. But it's very difficult to take a picture of people standing in front of the lights and get both of those together. And it works great with the, 
with the new flash because it illuminates them in the foreground and the background is still nice. And in fact, you can even do tricks like moving the camera slightly while you're taking it and it will keep you in focus because you have been brightly illuminated where the background will be sort of blurred. So that's kind of a cool effect to do. So you can be sort of artistic now. Yeah, it's like a, a new trick to try. And then of course, in addition to the actual LED lighting, the 8 Plus also features portrait lighting, which I have some questions for Apple about how exactly it works. Because when you take a, a portrait on an 8 Plus and you, and iSync or iCloud copies it to your other phones, it remains editable. You get that same interface on, on the 7. Because if you take pictures with the 7, you only get the portrait mode, which means you can turn off the bokeh or not. The, the where, blurred background or the depth right. effect of the background. Right. And those two things are different. They're actually taking... The 7, I believe, takes a lower resolution uh, depth map. So it takes a photo and it also takes, in conjunction with that, it uses the two lenses to calculate a depth map of who's in the... You know, what is the foreground and what is in the background. And it's not just a binary front-back. It's also kind of a gradient mm-hmm. of this is closer and this is further away. And on the 8, I believe it's just doing that in high resolution. And so you can actually have, you're not just saying foreground, background, you're saying here's the features of your face. And I believe it's also using facial recognition to, to do, you know, this is the sides of your jaw and this is your where your eyes are. And so it maps out a, a lighting scenario that's kind of based on what you would look like if you had a bounce card or if you had lighting from a different angle that give you a dramatic If you had three-point lighting, face. for example. or Yeah. Yeah. And so those effects, um, they're still calling it in beta. Sometimes it doesn't work quite as you'd expect. Sometimes there's an error. That was true for the, I mean, that was true for the portrait mode for iPhone 7 and 7 Plus as well. Was that, Yeah, exactly. Um, it's true for anything on a digital camera. It can like mess Well, but they, they launched it in like beta Panorama, for you know. three months or something before they decided to release it as this is the public final version of it. Right. And they keep improving upon that. So it's something that once you have the data, you can keep refining it and making it better. Because it's there's a lot of algorithms in play of how it decides what's how to crop the photo, but or how to how do you interpret the depth map? I guess is what it is doing. So you're saying that make sure I understood you correctly. If you take a photograph on the iPhone 8 Plus, and then that photograph is synchronized with your iCloud photo library, and you check and edit that photo on your iPhone 7 or 7 Plus. And, and please, please answer to make sure which I, I understand which one I of those. I think it requires a plus. It requires the I'm not, seven I'm plus. I'm not sure about. Well, I'm, I'm not sure about that because I haven't actually tried it back to an earlier non-plus phone. But that that was kind of shocking that I got that the new UI on the older phone, and so that suggests that um, rather than being a live effect that's calculated on the A11, it's when you take the photo, it creates those variations, or it somehow... It records all the data at the time that it's captured, and it's all right. editable after the fact. And that's that's what I understood from the keynote. Right, it remains editable. Yes, it remains editable, but what I'm saying is, I would have, I would, I would have expected it to remain editable on the 11, because it's doing this big effect that requires horsepower on the, the new chip. But when you take a photo, and you sync it to an older phone, it still remains editable on that older phone. So with I believe the new what interface. What it, yeah, what I believe what it's doing is it's when you take a photo, it's creating these vari- variations or it's calculating, you know, the effect that you would apply. And then that's how you can edit it after the fact. It's not reapplying and changing those. It's just selecting between which one you want to be the... So it's kind of like a live photo where you're picking out 
the keyframe. It's, here, it's taken interesting this, that I've you think it's toggling. It's, already done. it's just toggling between things that it's already done as opposed to rerunning the calculations on the older processor. I'd be right. interested if you can find out more information about that. Because definitely, if, if, if you were able to do the calculations on the A10 7 Plus, they should have made it available for that. And, you know, it should either work or it shouldn't. You know, well, either it should work with photos you take. So the, the two things I can see is, one, if you take a photo with the 7 Plus... I mean, you don't if have the camera hardware to do that effect, right? But if the camera hardware isn't there to give it enough information, you don't get to see that exposed. But if the camera information was recorded in a photograph that was synced over, the information is there, and that's why the interface shows up. I mean, that makes sense to me. I, I see how it's awkward to to try and explain. You, you'd rather just be it works or it doesn't. But no, I'm just I'm just surprised because I would when I was looking at the the effect, the portrait lighting, I was imagining that it's doing it in real time. So that when you choose it, your your chip is actually like refiguring out the best way to light this. Whereas what I think what's happened is when you first take the photo, it creates those effects or creates those variations, and then they're frozen into the photo. So even if you just yeah. put that photo somewhere else, you can still edit it. So it's, see, I wouldn't have thought that they were like frozen. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought, thought either, they were but. frozen in. I would have thought that it's recalculating it, and that it's the the camera sensors that can't record the correct information for it to have that ability on the 7 Plus. I think the sensors are kind of the same. I think the biggest difference is the computational ability of the processor of the chip, the ISP on the you know A11 is what's doing those kind of changes. That's why, you know, in a parallel example, if you can take a low-light photo on the 8, it's going to continue to look better than a low-light photo that you took on the 7. Even if it syncs over to a 7, it doesn't get worse because it's not recalculating anything. It's just looking at something you've already... But the other, the other thing that that would matter about is, in the future, if Apple improves that portrait lighting feature, it wouldn't necessarily improve photos that have already been taken. So they're not going to be recalculated. Um, so that's something I'd like to re- clarify because that's kind of an interesting idea of well, you, whether you it's just a, taking a, a solid, where, whether it's taking a frozen, you know, artwork, this is done, it's finished. <laughs> you can pick between the alternative versions of it, but it's it's been frozen. This, is, this is the George Lucas debate all over again. Oh, well, it's just trying right? to Should things be remastered, basically. Yeah. But uh, you, you raise a good point about the image signal, the, the image processor and its role in this. Right. You know, clearly, if if it's the image, if the sensors are the same, and it's the image signal processor in the middle that's the uh, the the different part of the chain, then that becomes important to know. It could be doing it live on that image signal processor, and and you're right, it just doesn't have that on the other phone. It's interesting. Definitely, definitely look into that if you can. What else did you find from using the iPhone eight? What else was a surprise for you? Uh, let's see, what's surprising. I think, well, wireless charging is kind of a handy idea, but the power delivery, USB power delivery, and being able to charge rapidly is so much nicer. <laughs> I mean, it's like to me, it's like <laughs> such a bigger deal to be able to intently, purposely get your phone up to, to charge much faster. And it's kind of interesting to do comparisons of here's a you know previous iPhone connected to the fastest way I know how to get power into it on a, you know, iPad charger or something. <clears throat> and then mm. here's plugged into USB-C and it's, you can like watch it go up. Oh yeah. No, does, I, I know that get, experience. It does get warm as you charge it. But. I, when I traveled internationally, I uh, use an Android phone sometimes. And, and I was last traveling with a Huawei made Nexus 6P, which fast charges using a USB-C connector. And 
it's like you say, it's it's really revelatory just how quickly you can charge a phone. And when you have zero battery and can have it full in a very short period of time, it makes a big difference, doesn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's very frustrating to, especially when you're traveling, you go out and, but I mean, I typically carry around a battery with me that can charge it up a full charge or two. Yeah, but what if you didn't have to do that any longer? Yeah, I wonder if there's battery packs that support power delivery. I haven't, uh, I haven't seen any. That's a good question. I, I haven't charging. seen any. Because the other thing that I that I noted um, is if you have the 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 USB C power adapters that were created for the MacBooks, uh, if it's at least twenty nine watts, and there's also some third party ones that work use the same power delivery format. So power delivery has a couple different things. And so the MacBooks are also using the same technology to power. It's basically just using a higher voltage and it's delivering power. So it requires a couple things, one of which is a bigger wire. So the the lightning, the skinny light lightning cables that have shipped with iPhones forever were never designed to be transmitting like 14 watts of power or 14 volts of power. Um, so you do need to have another, a new cable, which is not cheap. And uh, that's probably something that I wouldn't want to experiment with too much, seeing how what kind of what kind of cables you could. Can you remind me? Does does the iPhone eight use Quick Charge three? Do you remember? Power delivery is a specification that's that's part of USB, and it is parallel with you know, like USB three and USB C. So it's not just because something yeah. is one of those doesn't mean it's the other one. Right, but it's a part of that USB three point one spec. Okay. Right. So having a USB three cable doesn't necessarily mean that it supports power delivery, and Correct. so on. Yeah. It looks as if there are battery power banks that support power delivery. Yeah, I would imagine so. The MacBooks, if you plug your phone into the MacBook, I notice it does not charge at a faster rate, even if mm. you use the USB C to Lightning cable. Yeah. And also MacBooks, if you plug a MacBook into a MacBook Pro, it, it kind of trickle charges. If you plug a, a big MacBook Pro into a MacBook, you get like like two watts. Yeah. But um, which is not enough to do anything. It, it says it's not charging. Like a, like when you plug an iPad into a five volt charger. Right. It, it, it will light up that it's charging, but in fact will not charge. It might even drain. Well, it says, yeah, it says that it's plugged in, but it's like not charging because it's not getting enough to charge fast. Yeah. If you turn the display off, you'll get a little bit of charge, but I mean, it will, it will slowly go up. But so the, you can't... the thing about these battery banks is that many of them that have power delivery have power delivery on the port that charges the battery. They don't necessarily have power power delivery on the output side of that. So you could recharge your battery quickly, but you may not necessarily charge your device quickly. Right, which is the same deal as the MacBooks. So they right. they take power delivery, but they can't um, pass it on. You can't daisy chain them together or power them out right. Yeah, that's what it looks like. Very cool. So. It's, you know, I, I found that wireless charging was very convenient on other devices, but like you say, it's it's not something that is nearly as much fun as, as recharging quite fast. You know, you, you plug it in and you're done versus putting it down and hoping that it's uh, charged enough when you pick it up. Yeah, the handy thing about wireless power or wireless induction charging is that it, it's a standard so that if everyone's using the same one... Uh, in an airport or something, you don't have to have three or four different jacks. Or alternatively, 
instead of, instead of having a USB port, you just have the ability to lay your phone down on a pad. And I, I have, I've seen a couple of these things around. It, it isn't quite as ubiquitous enough to be useful. And USB is quite useful for a lot of things. So there's a lot of things you could do with USB in terms of powering different kinds of devices that you have different cables for that may not be able to power over a wireless pad. But yeah. So it has some potential there for convenience. Plenty of- I mean, one of the things that I've found in airports is that there are sometimes USB ports that are installed in, say, the uh, the armrests of the seats in the lounge or the armrests in the seats of the uh, the gate area that don't necessarily charge all devices. For example, I can I can plug an iPhone into the USB port on that that charger, and it won't do a thing. I have to get out the USB brick and do it through the wall through regular power connection. Do you think? That now that that she is a standard that's adopted by, of course, other phones, and now the iPhone, that we'll see it proliferate much more. That uh, that it'll become ubiquitous and it will start to matter. I think there's sort of a a style element to it. Um, and the other thing that's going to keep changing is how fast wireless charging charges. And so this, the standard also, like Apple's working on this idea of having multiple devices on the same pad. It's kind of more for for a consumer thing, but. Um, because a pad can only charge it right now, the iPhones only support five, eventually it'll support seven, which is kind of, it's not terribly fast. It's similar to the little tiny block that they ship with, and it would still be slower than the larger block that, you know, most people are aware that an iPad USB block will charge faster. And there's a lot of, um, adapters for your car or even some battery packs that will say, you know, this port is regular USB and this port is lightning USB. It's 2.1 amps. Right, which the is 2.1 10, or the 2.4. 12 yeah. watts. And it's noticeably faster. So the same thing is going to probably happen to wireless charging to where you go to an airport and it's like, wow, we installed these charging pads. And it's like, oh, they're old-style old ones that only charge at 7 watts in a couple of years. So, I mean, right now, USB is, you know, USB-A is, is really common and useful. But we're also seeing this sort of tipping the iceberg towards USB-C. Eventually, we're going to have perhaps ports changing. Because the other thing is with USB-A, you know, the old-style USB, it's also limited in how much power it can deliver because it was only ever designed. USB 2 is only designed to deliver 2 watts, really. Right, but there are USB-A connectors for USB 3 and 3.1. It's just that, uh, and they have a lot more conductors inside of them. It, it, the, one of the difficulties is you can't really tell what you've got when, you, when you're looking at those, right? Yeah, but I mean, most, you know, the big indicator most for ports that are USB installed. 3 is that the are not anything. Yeah, they're, they're USB yeah, 2 at the most. There's least common denominator. So that's kind of the same issue for wireless charging is it's going to be the lowest common denominator kind of thing. The uh, most universal port, at least in the United States, <laughs> is the AC power. You can always plug whatever you got into that. But then you have to have more cables and whatever. You end up with the sponsored by Samsung charging posts and airports and so on. So what, what has been the thing you've enjoyed the most you know, you said the the charging, but what else? What else have you really found that has made this iPhone better than all the other iPhones that came before it for you? Uh, well, definitely the camera. I mean, that's what I've been spending most of my time looking at. Uh, the just being able to take better pictures and having some of the details handled for you, uh, so you can kind of focus on what you're trying to take a picture of instead of trying to figure out why it's blowing out this area of the photo or why you're getting so much grain in, in low light. Or why, you know, try to take a picture with the flash and it kind of destroys the photo. So I use my phone as a 
camera so much that that's a really compelling reason to upgrade. There's a couple other features that, in addition to the wireless, wireless charging, the True Tone display is nice. It took me a while to kind of figure out what I thought of it, but I'm noticing more and more, it just feels kind of more natural. And particularly in comparison with my previous phone, which I never saw anything wrong with when I was using it, but when I kind of go back and forth between them, I notice that when I'm in sort of softer, warmer light, it it's commonly uh, looks really harshly blue. And so what True Tone does is it keeps the uh, keeps the screen looking the, the way a piece of paper would look in the, in the lighting that you're in. So it's doing constant color management to to look natural to kind of reflect your environment instead of just being like this cold, unchanging display technology. So that's kind of growing on me. The uh, screen looks great. Um, I don't otherwise I don't see a big difference between I mean I don't I don't see a difference between that and the previous seven, which was quite a good quality screen. Uh, the OLED screen that comes on the 10, I haven't examined it with a microscope, uh, but it has that like lush black look to it that looks glossy because the blacks are so black because it's a totally different technology instead of, instead of creating a picture and shining light through it like an LCD does, it's actually all those pixels are illuminating. So it's, if, if pixels are not illuminating because they're black, they're super black. Whereas on LCD, it's it's saying this is black and then it's shining a light through it. And hopefully there's not a whole lot of light coming through, but there's it's still kind of like a gray black compared to OLED. Yeah, that's one of the hallmarks of OLED. So you have that incredible what about the contrast feel to the phone. I mean, it, it looks kind of warmer. and But I, yeah, obviously I notice it most when I'm comparing between the two phones. But Should anyone be concerned about that? You know, if they're trying to do um, like things that are color dependent or color uh, color critical? I don't think so. It, it's it's kind of in the same vein as um, night. What's it called? Night mode. Night shift. Night shift. Where night shift is quite obviously taking all the blue out, or taking a lot of the blue out, so that when you first do it, you notice it's like wow, it's shockingly different. But then after a minute, your eyes kind of adjust to it, and you don't see that uh, as much. And it's kind of a similar idea that once you turn on True Tone, it becomes sort of natural. If there's some reason that you don't want it on, you can turn it off really easily. So. I wouldn't say that that would could possibly be a, a negative, but I've never felt like I needed to turn it off. Okay, you know, I, I ask because all the time I see people who are worried about the the correctness of their color. You know, they're they're trying to show something that they've painstakingly picked out the right Pantone color, or they've they've photographed in such a way that they're sure that it the right representation of the colors has to come through. And now they're they're concerned because they can't be positive that the iPhone will show it the same way twice, depending on who's viewing it where, right? Well, the with True Tone or, or with yeah with True Tone, it doesn't change the way your camera takes photos. So I mean, if you were really concerned, but it, show, it if changes really concerned the way they're about displayed, a very specific right? Type of color, you wouldn't. I guess I don't see the application you're saying, but it's like if I if I was saying, hey, I want to you know, see this color that's very specific way. Um, it's it's changing it based on ambient lighting, so that changes no matter what, whether you change whether your screen is adjusting or not. You can have a very, <laughs> you can give somebody a printed out Pantone color tab, and if they're looking at it in different ambient lighting colors, it's going to look different. It's the same same right. thing. So the point of this is to to guarantee that it looks the same way depending on the light you're in. Yeah, I mean, if you had some mission critical, this has to be this color orange, you would have to say you'd have to look at it in this specific light to look at, see the same way I do. And you might, 
both have to take an eye test to make sure that you're both perceiving it exactly the same. But <laughs> okay, you know, I, it's it's not that something I'm harping on so much, but it's something that's come up in the past when True Tone was first announced, and it's something I see from uh, some photographers and some designers who want to make sure that when they show something to a client, the client is going to see it the same way they intended. Yeah, and if you're if you're doing something that is, like I said, mission critical like that, you would say, hey, don't look at this with True Tone turned on. But um, yeah, I think that's probably one of the least least real problems that you could have with an iPhone 8. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's <laughs> something. It, that sounds like some of those things where when anytime anyone sees anything that Apple says, they immediately start creating reasons why that could be the end of the world. Yes, that's pretty much what it was. Yeah. It was the, the sky is falling because there's this new thing that affects our colors. Yeah. And not even affects them negatively necessarily, but oh my gosh, they're monkeying with colors. Yeah, I mean, Apple does have a pretty good track record of, the company certainly makes mistakes, but when they're doing something like that, there's usually a lot of thought that goes into making sure that it's working correctly. So, I mean, there's a little bit of benefit of the doubt just to be like, probably if they made this one of their keynote features, it's not haphazardly just like thrown out there. In contrast to, you know, like other hardware makers that just say like, hey, hey, we have this TV with a super brilliant mode that just blows the color out so it looks really good in the showroom and people will buy it. Like, what if it's not accurate? And that's exactly what that feature was for. Exactly. And also that feature exists so that when it gets home, people say, wait, this looks terrible. The shop that sold it can sell calibration services. Yeah, you need to professionally calibrate it. You have to have someone come out and install it for you. So that'll get you. Let me, let me ask. The, the iPhone 8 is the first phone that has Apple's own homegrown GPU inside. It's it's not one of the power VR chipsets that came from imagination in the past. Have you noticed anything different about this phone using that new chipset? Uh, apart from battery life, it seems like to me they kind of said the battery life was going to be the same, and it seems like it's better battery life. I mean, I'm also comparing a brand new phone with a year old phone, so that might have some minor impact on it. Um, but I I backed up and restored the same stuff that's on my phone, so it's pretty equal situation um, apart from the age of the battery. Um, I don't think in the first year there should be like a remarkable notice in battery life uh, going down, but that certainly plays into the uh, ability for the battery to last longer because it's faster, but it's more efficient. So they're saying it's 30% faster, but it's, you know, doing the same tasks that it's can last for uh, uses half as much power, which is a pretty significant thing that even if you're, whether you're doing heavy graphics work, like if you're you know in the middle of a video game, or if you're just doing just the kind of basic things that a processor does and handling your animations and whatever, uh, it seems like battery life is the biggest thing I notice. Uh, there are iPhone, the 6 Plus was the first iPhone I've ever noticed that just felt kind of like a little bit slow. And I think a big part of that was the fact that it had, you know, it went from, the, you know, the 4-inch iPhone or the 5-inch iPhones, the iPhone 5 series, had, what, almost a million pixels or something? It was like, 750,000, something like that. And the standard iPhone 6 had, if I'm saying this right, I think it's like around 1 million, and then the Plus is almost 2 million. So it's a big jump in how many pixels you're having to push. And it's the first time it ever felt like there was sort of a, a little bit of an Android-like pause or, you know, like uh, jitter in animations and things. It felt a little bit slow. Sometimes you turn the phone and it's kind of like, there's a little slight hesitation uh, that you really notice because you're used to an iPhone being so battery smooth all the time and every year that gets a little bit better and it feels like it's also better on the 8 and there's also a lot more uh, animations in iOS 11 that I notice 
So it feels like it's doing more work, but it's doing a better job of it. Um, there's still, I mean, it can still always get, get faster and more dialed in, but um, that's another kind of interesting aspect of when we're talking about the 10 coming up is it has an even higher resolution, but it's also has the same sort of aspect ratio. It, it's kind of like a tall version of the 7. It's a taller version of the smaller phone, even though it has a higher resolution than the Plus. It's not like the Plus format where you have sort of a wide right. the, wideness to it. The Plus is a little bit wider. And and you mm-hmm. notice this when you switch it to landscape mode where you don't necessarily get all of the same toolbars and stuff that you'd have room for on the Plus size device. Right. And the, the Plus actually has a, they call it a standard mode and a zoomed mode. And the zoom mode is basically looking like a, a, a standard phone, a standard iPhone scaled up the, the 4. to the larger 7 screen, inch. right? I wish they had another mode that was kind of the other direction where everything was like a little bit smaller and tighter, you know, scaled down so you could even see even more. But Sure. Okay, so let's let's uh, close out the iPhone p- section for a second. Uh, go ahead and give us one final thought on the iPhone and, and where you think the iPhone 8 fits in. Well, one of the things, and then I'm going to do an ad read. Okay. One of the things that you talked about was the the rumor of having a a, a new 10 in the future that would be like a 10 plus. Right. So there's there's a rumor that we have here that suggests that next year. 2018, that Apple will launch a jumbo-sized 6.4-inch iPhone 10, And uh, this story comes from the investor who reported on Monday that, that citing local parts makers, that instead of making a 5.28-inch OLED phone, that instead 2018 looks like a 5.85-inch phone and a 6.46-inch model. And you know, they're, they're, they also suggest that, well, there could be a possible insertion of a greater than 6-inch LCD model on the line somewhere. Um, that Apple has reportedly signed several contracts with Samsung for multiple OLED-sized screens. Yeah, I mean, no, we know that Apple likes to change the resolution of their phones just, like, frantically every year. <clears throat> That's not true. <laughs> but oh, over the, when you, over the when whole you read sarcasm, <laughs> that, that, when you read your, your sarcasm with that heavy of a veil over it, it's hard to hear it at first. Yeah. Uh, that was not thinly veiled at all. No. Um, so, and in, in the whole history of iPhone, Apple has changed the resolution how many times? I mean, they went to um, went uh, to Retina. There was the change between four and five. Well, they changed Retina to the four, right. so that was that was putting twice as many pixels on the screen to do nothing more but just make everything sharper. And then the five, but with two the years same later, ratio as previous, and then the five increased the changed the ratio. So it increased the amount of things you then, could see on the screen. Without changing the DPI. The, then the 6 changed it again, and the 6 plus. So that both changed those a little bit. So it was like a different ratio. Yeah. And it was also a larger resolution in terms of size, too. Right. And and then again with the uh, the, the 10. So I, I can count that on one hand. Yeah. And, and there's a good reason for that. It's not just that Apple's too slow in doing these things. Because Samsung has like changed the resolution on their phones like every year. And they have like multiple... Twice a year. Multiple phones that they're changing, yeah, within those years. And a big part of that is because Samsung makes screens, and that's how they can, you know, the best way they can stand out from a bunch of Android phones that work the like and do are pretty much exactly the same is to frantically say, you know, hey, we have even even bigger double plus, you know, super AMOLED plus plus display this year, where, you know, they can't really say anything else. They can't deploy a lot of technologies. It, they've tried to do technology before, and you know, all the wave stuff and the 
focus attention, like looking at your gaze and all that kind of stuff just sort of didn't really get any, any traction. So they've kind of focused on hardware features and saying, hey, this is the this letter acronym. And that's kind of what Samsung can do because that's all they can do. Um, Apple doesn't really have that. What Apple has, the strongest thing Apple has is the platform. And so Apple has to protect that in terms of they can't just like randomly make changes to the platform for a bunch of different models that would fractionalize and just dramatically increase the amount of work that developers have to do to make an app look good on each of those devices. Yeah, I was going to say that. that, that you know, it's when they make a change, the change affects several different people. It affects users who have to get accustomed to the new change, and it affects developers who have to do a large amount of work to accommodate it. Yeah, depending on how much change there is. And with the 10, you know, they're making changes to the resolution and the, the ratio of the screen. It's different. And there's a number of things that are going to change all at once, and it's uh, something that developers have to account for, but that's going to be a popular phone. You know, it's not like a, a micro model that they're sort of putting out. Like the SE was like a small phone, but it was exactly the same as all the other phones that were like it before. It's just faster. So it doesn't radically change what developers have to do to make phone. I mean, it doesn't really change anything for developers to be able to support it in the way that, you know, apps running on it are going to look good. Uh, whereas the 10, there's going to be a lot of people that are expecting things to change and to look good on the, on the new phone. And there's some people talking about, you know, I want my apps to look this way. I want to be able to see the ears or not, or the notch. And those are the things that are going to have an impact on what developers do or what they have to do to make it look good on the, the new phone that people are buying. So people will want to use their apps. Um, I, I don't, there was a clear reason why Apple came out with this strategy of having the 6 and the 6 Plus because they're covering a couple different bases. Going forward, they now have the most phones they've ever sold, the most generations of phones that are basically you have the SE from the holdover of 5 era. You have the 6s, which are a variation of price, basically, based on features. And then the new 10, which is sort of the future. So going into the future, does Apple need to have a 10 and a 10 plus? Well, it kind of depends on how well, uh, whether people are really wanting to have a larger screen or just a bigger screen, because this is a screen of the plus in terms of size, a larger screen, well, but it's in a smaller Well, I case. think there are two, I mean, I think there are two ways that people use a plus size device and, and it's a broad generalization, but the the first way is the way that you said right you you would prefer that there was a a, uh, a zoom out mode that allowed you to pack more on the screen right right there so there are people that use it in regular mode like you do that try and fit as much as they possibly can on the screen to take advantage of the larger screen but at the same time there are people uh, and, and sometimes the elderly fit into this category who like to zoom in or, or people who have eyesight difficulties right. who like to use the zoomed part so they have the larger screen with everything represented larger on the screen so that they can actually see what they're looking at and use the device with and have it be accessible to them. So there's definitely a utility in having a larger sized device. The, the question is, what do you do with that screen size? Right, and, and how do you accommodate those two very different types of users? Right, there is there is a reason why you'd want to have larger screen sizes, but those accessibility features can work on any size phone. So you can even have a very small phone that has 
larger text on it. Um, the six and six plus both, or you know, those two generations or those two models, both support the idea of having zoomed content, and you can use accessibility yes. to zoom it up even larger. So, but there are <clears> tons <throat> of consumers who buy the larger one on the basis of their eyesight, whether it's right. sensible or necessary or not. That's that's right. the choice so you can they're put making. More bigger text on a bigger phone. With right. the ten, you can put. Uh, similarly large text and almost as much on a phone that's the size of a, a seven is the idea. Now, whether there's, whether there's demand for, so I think most of the demand goes towards like what you're saying for people who want to have bigger text, be able to more readable. Um, and kind of, I'm kind of like the other side of that spectrum right now until my eyes totally go downhill is wanting to have more on the screen at once. You can read more text kind of things. Um, whether or not people want to have a larger screen, because a large, you know, a much larger screen is, is based on having a larger device. At some point, you know, the, the size of the screen is sort of the deciding how big your device is going to be. It's kind of like um, spinning optical media. If you have, if your music is on a CD, your player can only get to be so small before the CD is like sticking out the side. But whether or not there's a demand for people who want larger and larger, physically larger phones. I think that the 10 is going to, I think it really hits a sweet spot in delivering a lot of the functionality of the plus for whatever reason people want it. Because a big part of it's not just, you know, bigger text. It's also having your photos bigger. If you look at a photo taken on a seven and you compare it to a seven plus, it just looks better on the seven plus because you can see more of it. And, you know, you're seeing across, you know, high resolution. So on a, on a 10, it's, going to be slightly less wide but you're still getting resolution and and a it's physically the screen size is almost as big as the plus it's just the case is the overall case is smaller so i'm kind of wondering if that's going to be a good compromise because before you had to kind of have two different screen sizes to prevent the phone from just getting too big because originally when the six came out the six and six plus there was only something like 10% that went for the plus and every year that's gotten bigger. And this year I'm hearing people talking about that. The, it looks like the plus is selling about half of the eight. Now in part, I think that's because a lot of people who want a smaller phone are waiting for a 10, but just the, the demand for having a, a bigger screen phone is going up. So it's interesting to be, it's just, it will be interesting to see how much of that demand goes towards the 10 as a form factor. And right now it's going to be a little bit held back because of the, it's, you know, significantly more expensive. I see all these reviews, reviews and they're saying, oh, the 10 is just a little bit more. It's like $300 more. <laughs> that's kind of, that's, you know, a significant amount for a lot of people shopping for phones. But I think also it's kind of like the car market where if you remember in the seventies and eighties that, you know, the price of cars suddenly jumped upward because of all these new technologies that you needed to have on a car to be safe enough. And um, it created sticker shock. But eventually, people just got to the point where it's like, oh, this is how much a car costs. We're going to pay for it. And I'm not going to pay for a cheaper car, even though there are cheaper cars that I could find around the world, because I know that they're not really safe. Because <laughs> I've seen what, you know, a similar looking car in Mexico, once it crashes, it's like, people inside are dead. Right. Well, and, and cars that are sold in country have to comply with that country's safety rules. So it's not like you should feel bad necessarily about buying a car in, in your own country. But... Um, you're right. The prices have gone up extremely. You know, when, when you and I were kids, it was not even the 70s and the 80s and 90s. Um, 
you, you could buy a Hyundai Excel for, you know, what, $6,000? That wasn't a nice car, but... <laughs> it was not a nice car, <laughs> it but like it was plastic. basic transportation. Right. It, was, it was, in fact, probably the worst car that Hyundai ever made. Um, had a reputation for terrible engine problems. But, you, you know, you could get affordable transportation and drive it until it broke, which was relatively quickly after you drove it off the lot. But now, in order to, to buy transportation, you, you end up spending, what, $25,000? The median price is somewhere in the 30s? And for a lot of people, that is a, a, a large part of their income. A large percentage of you know their income is going towards paying for a vehicle. And people do it because it's you know, kind of important to have a car in most places, but well, with, because your your job depends upon it, right? right? There are some places where you simply don't have access to public transportation. And the same kind of thing with having a phone is there's so many things that we need to do that are kind of dependent on having a phone, just access to information and being able to, you know, get information about your flight or contact somebody immediately or, you know, all these things, there's so much value in not just for work, but it's also kind of like a car where it's a combination of need to have and also love to have and enjoy and it does all the things you, it allows you to do all the things that make you happy kind of thing and so i think that there's less price sensitivity than a lot of people think there's been a lot of there's been kind of a, a narrative for for years and years talking about how apple is just in terrible trouble because the price of phones are just going to plummet to zero basically and we've seen that happening in android land but it's not happening in iphones iphones just keep getting more expensive and they're getting more expensive because Apple's driving the technology to, to retain that value. And that's something that everybody else wants to do. I mean, Google tried to do it. Samsung was trying to do it. They just haven't been able to do it. And you have companies like Essential. You know, here's Andy Rubin saying, hey, we're going to take this Android technology and make a good phone out of it. And, you know, they make this fancy phone with a lot of leading technology, but they can't sell 5,000 of them. So it's not just getting expensive. It's also being able to deliver an expensive product that people find value in and be able to support it and have it something that people find reliable and think is going to, you know, to see it as something that's going to safeguard their data. And their well, experience. Andrew Room's bet is that there was a market for a super expensive Android based phone from the person who's is the namesake for Android and that also had connectors on the back for accessory devices to attach to it. And and the question is, he, he thought for sure that there was that market, but it it's one of those things where you ask yourself, okay, so how do you identify who those people are and how do you find those people? How do you reach those people? And I, I think they spent a lot of time identifying the, what they wanted to have out of a phone without really identifying how they were going to reach the people that were going to buy the thing. Which is kind of a Google thing. I mean, that's kind of Google, what Google has been doing over and over again, is coming up with a whole lot of the ideas about, hey, we could do this, we could do this, and then we do this, and they don't think about, how are we actually going to sell this? How are we going to get people to know about it? Before Andy Rubin did Android and, and came to Google to do Android, um, he was one of the people behind the Sidekick. Do you remember the Sidekick device? Right. Danger. Yeah, he, well, the Danger Hip Top that eventually got sold as the T-Mobile sidekick in the U.S. And that device was a wild success, but it was a wild success because they had carriers pushing it and because they had people who spread the word about how great it was 
to be able to use it for email and chat and, and data. it wasn't a premium phone. It was and a plastic phone for kids. I mean, it was a, a, in it, a very it, affordable phone. It was... It was being sold by, like, Sprint. It was a variable, affordable phone. It was, like, almost free. Well, like, like I said, T-Mobile. And T-Mobile at the time was in fourth place, right? It was a very accessible device. You didn't have to work to get right. one, and it wasn't made out of premium materials. Yeah, it was, like, a, a very utilitarian, like, was a texting phone. At the height of, you know, texting was like where the value was. It wasn't like people needed a browser or, you know, a computer phone. So it was, it totally hit that kind of delivery. It was like the Blackberry for younger people. The great communicator. It really was. It really was. But it, it, it changed things. And it was every phone after that that, uh, and that was his big success. So... But you a lot know, of the, the, the a lot of the is, danger team came from Apple. You know, Andy Rubin himself was working at Apple, and so it was kind of there was this sort of original culture of how do we build things that can be sold, a hardware company, to you know functionally doing it at danger, and then Google was sort of a hey we have technology we can just go wild in every direction we want to all at the same time. We can try 20 different things at once and have it all in beta. And it will just be like this experimental open source program just for everything. And we don't have to worry about any of it making money because we're making money on advertising on a totally different... Right, but that's and our, and our customers are not even the people who are starting to sell this technology to. Our customers are you know companies that we're telling them to spend this money on advertising. And that has not changed. You know, Google can come out with all the hardware that they want and they still can't sell it because they don't, they're not a hardware company. And they can buy hardware companies and it doesn't make them into a hardware company. What has changed is since they reorganized under Alphabet, they have been making all of their different divisions and units stand up and have to account for themselves. And if they can't make money, then they get put on a short leash. Yeah, they've been cracking down on a lot of that. And, and that's why they've canceled a lot of their stuff. But I don't, I don't see that there's any radical difference in, in terms of what they're trying to do. They're still making almost all their money for advertising. And, you know, they put out some products. They've, you know, worked with HEC to build products. But um, they're not selling them in quantities that really matter. You know, The Verge talks about all these products like they're, you know, on the same level as Apple's products. But, and, you know, on a technical level, yeah, you can review them in, in the same kind of seriousness. But... When people go to buy a laptop, they don't say, hmm, do I want a MacBook or do I want a Chromebook? Nobody's making that decision. Right, the, the customer that's a, that would ask that question is never going to ask that question because there are two different budgets and two different needs. Right, and the, people, the people. people that don't have money to buy computers, like schools, are like, yeah, let's load up on Chromebooks because they're really easy to manage. And people who say, I want you know, something that works and that, you know, it's flexible and does a lot of things that I already do and works with the software I want, they're not going to say, hmm, should I buy a Chromebook? Because maybe I can just do everything in, in Chrome with some extensions. Yeah, so it's it's a totally, it's, it's, it's not an open market of, you know, who's going to buy this stuff. And it's a very similar thing with phones. That, you know, there's people who are just like, I hate Apple and I'm never going to buy anything that looks like an iPhone unless it comes from Google, then I'll buy it. Um, but that segment of the population is quite small and it's not really that important because those people also don't pay as much for apps and they don't pay for a lot of things so they're not creating that kind of market for people who buy apps or 
subscribe to content. And so it's, it's just not as um, important of a product category. Support for today's show comes from Audible. Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from leading publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, and business information providers. Unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible, you own your books, so you can access them anytime, anywhere, from almost any device, including your iPhone, iPad, Android, or even an Amazon Fire tablet, if you have one of those. Audible makes getting more books in your life easy, and they have an unbeatable selection of audiobooks and incredible performances. You can transform your commute and ride with Audible. And they have such a huge catalog of books. For example, I, I like reading biographies, and there's one in Audible by Chrisanne Brennan, who was, of course, uh, had a connection with Steve Jobs, let's say, without giving too much away. And, and she wrote a book called The Bite in the Apple, A Memoir of My Life with Steve Jobs, and that is in Audible. So you can go ahead and click through and, and listen to this book. And even better than that, if you sign up for Audible with uh, audible.com slash Apple Insider, you get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial. That's audible.com slash Apple Insider for a free audiobook with your 30-day trial. Dan, tell me about the iPhone 10 and what the supply bottleneck is. Well, we have a lot of people reporting that obviously the, the sensor bar is the most, they described it, Apple described it as being the most complicated stuff they've ever done. And that structure sensor is difficult to build. Um, so that keeps getting repeated. I mean, it's kind of obvious that that would be the, the bottleneck, but they keep officially repeating it as if it's... Yeah. it's just, as if the sky yeah, were falling. Well, I mean, if it's, if it's news. Like, this is probably what's going to be hardest to make. Uh, so it looks like there will be constrained supply. It'll be hard to get. Um, I think Apple... Obviously, Apple does best when it has a product that everybody wants and it can say, here's, here's a huge supply and everybody can buy one. Um, but when you are pushing technology, when you're innovating... It's hard to do that. And we've seen the last several products that Apple's had, um, AirPods, can't quite make enough to fill the demand. It, it would be better if Apple could. It's, it's clearly not doing it to just, you know, create the impression of lines. It's, um, they talk about when you're, when you're skiing, if you're not falling down, it means you're not trying hard enough. And there's a couple expressions like that in sports. So, you know, if you're not, if you're not failing a little bit, you're not really trying. And the way that Apple micro fails, you might say, is to do things that are kind of on the edge of its ability. It's not just doing things that are really simple and easy. And, and especially when you compare other companies, you see that, you know, the PC industry has just been like dumping out just here's the same thing with a little bit more megahertz and a little bit more RAM and um, for years. I mean, that's kind of an HP sort of thing. That's how you, a big company runs. And the effect of that kind of thing that, you know, HP isn't doing as well as Apple has done because Apple is really pushing the boundaries in, in terms of like what it can deliver. And with 10, it's like we're pushing it even faster because Apple could have just released the 8 and said, here's a new iPhone and everybody could have complained about how boring it was while they still bought it anyway. Um, but with in shipping the 10, which, which is a harder thing to do. So they made a, you know, significant improvements to the 8. But with the 10, they're kind of radically changing a lot of things that they didn't have to change, but they're changing those things to kind of deliver something that is um, ambitious. 
and what comes with that is being it's it's going to be more difficult to build. And every year they've done stuff like that. You know, with the seven, it was they didn't have to make it waterproof. They could have gone another year without it being fully waterproof. But by pushing to constantly try to do the best they can, and that's what other companies are doing as well. I mean, Samsung is constantly also pushing, but um, rarely do we see the news that you know Samsung can't build enough of this to meet demand. So let me ask you another problem that we've seen is the uh, reports of crackling from the iPhone eight speaker that there's an audio glitch during calls. I haven't experienced that on my phone, um, but I did see the article you wrote about it. They're okay, addressing so those. there there are a number of people reporting it to Apple support pages, and it's it seems to be a small number of people. Um, at least that's what Apple's statement says. Apple's statement says we're aware of the issue, which is affecting customers in a small number of cases. Our team is at work on a fix, which will be included in an upcoming software release, which which tends to suggest that it's a software issue, not hardware. Um, yeah. I I have noticed a problem that I'm not sure where it's happening yet. I'm going to have to do some more research, but I'll take photos and I don't see any problem with the photo, but when I post it to Instagram, it has like a line going through it, like a, like a hairline vertical line that's kind of in the same place all the time. And I don't know if that is being introduced by some weirdness in the new hardware or if it's a flaw in Instagram or what the issue is, but it's like growing pains. And there's things that can be like an issue. It seems like there's some display issues in iOS 11 where it will do something a little wonky sometimes. Like I'll wake it up and the um, I'll have the notification panel come up and then I'll immediately sign in. So it'll put my apps on top of notifications instead of painting the you know wallpaper of the homepage, which is like a little you know screen weirdness that it's not typical for iPhones to, to be weird like that. So Apple's also doing a lot of ambitious things about sort of rebuilding large parts of its stack. <laughs> I've seen people talking about um, Mac OS High Sierra uh, having a problem with, I think it's the Windows server, just kind of bugging out. Yes. It's, well, it bugs out, especially up at the around the menu bar. Yeah. So that isn't just, they didn't just introduce a bug. It's they've rewritten, you know, big chunks of, the operating system on a regular basis. And it's frustrating because things that were working fine now have like a little weirdness to it. Uh, a couple years ago, that was the thing with Discovery D. And it's like, we've changed how we've changed the structure of the network, or infrastructure kind of thing. And here it's causing all these problems for like lots of different kinds of people. But if they never changed anything, then you'd have this kind of building up of craft that you get to a problem where you're, you're like the old Mac OS 7 from the early nineties where they just didn't ever fix anything and everything was just sort of patched with band-aids. And then you just have this kind of huge mass of software that needs to be radically re overhauled on many levels. And it's just a huge task and hard to do kind of the same thing with windows or with, you know, I think with Android, there's a lot of things that need to get patched and it's just are never going to happen because it's just so much work to try to change all this stuff without breaking all this other stuff. And even if it does get patched or even if it does get rewritten and it's never going to get rolled out to the, Billion or two people that are actually well, Android, Android eight phone. rewrites a whole bunch of things because it rearchitects how the, is the OS get, is constructed. It's not going to get put out there for the users. Give it a couple of years. I, I'm running it on one phone, but it's going to take about two years for everyone else to get it for a little bit. And right, that's how. I mean, it works. two years is a long time for technology to be. I know. Sitting there waiting to get deployed. I was being a little facetious yeah. there. I want to thank you so much, Dan. We're going to have Neil on in just a second to, to talk about the watch and his experiences with the Apple Watch Series 3. Where can people find you, and, and where can they go to read more about your experiences with the iPhone 8? 
uh, we've been writing on Apple Insider and we have a series of technology articles. We kind of look into some of the technology that is new in iPhone 8 and iOS 11. And then, of course, I'm on Twitter at Daniel Aaron, E-R-A-N. Cool. Thanks again, Dan. Cheers. Welcome back. Neil, thank you for coming. Of course. Now, I'm going to ask you a question that's most popular with wristwatch blogs. Okay. What's on your wrist? <laughs> right now, I'm wearing the Apple Watch Series 3 with cellular. It is the aluminum, a.k.a. formerly known as the Sport model uh, in space gray with the Sport Loop band. The Vel- not, not Velcro, though. Uh, loop and hook band, as they call it. For yes. Legal Velcro reasons. Velcro is a uh, DuPont trademark. Correct. How are you liking the red dot on the crown? <laughs> uh, I mean, the red dot is ugly. Uh, I think it's a misstep by Apple. Uh, for a company that usually designs pretty well aesthetically, um, usually pretty impressed by their color choices and options and just the general look, um, the red dot is pretty terrible, but uh, not nearly enough to be a deal breaker. Um I mean, if you don't like it, you can put a sticker over it, as we've detailed in stories. Or, I mean, I guess you could cover over it with a permanent marker if you really wanted to. But you don't really see it when you're wearing the watch because the digital crown doesn't face you. But when you turn your wrist to the side to see it, it's not particularly attractive. And what has been the best change about having cellular on the watch? So, um, you know, we ran our review this week. I really like this new Apple Watch. I think it's great. Um, And one of the things that I really kind of drew parallels to um, in the uh, review that we ran uh, was kind of the history of development of iOS, but more specifically, the growth of the iPad from the initial promise of a device that could replace your PC to something that eventually has now gotten to the point where it potentially could replace your PC, depending on your workflow. and, uh, you know, the Apple Watch is not there yet. Um, it's getting there, and adding LTE is a huge step in that direction. Um, it cannot be away from your phone all day. And this is the thing that a lot of people don't realize and that they complain about. And those are the people that are not really getting the point. There's a reason that when you set up your Apple Watch, you still have to initiate it from your phone, and you still have to go through the whole process, and it's still tethered to your phone, and it still backs up from your phone, and all that stuff. And that is that is the problem. That is the reason that uh, people are upset because you still have to use your phone for a majority of the day. It's not meant to be used on its own without your phone for 24 hours a day. You, you could theoretically do that, but you're probably not going to get the battery life, especially if you work out, use GPS, audio streaming, that sort of stuff. I, I know that you like to run. Yes. Tell me about what it's like to run with the Apple Watch and where you're at with your review of it as it ships. So, yeah, as it ships right now with watchOS 4, you cannot yet stream music from uh, Apple Music or iCloud Music Library. What it ships with is the ability to sync music from your iPhone and store it on the watch itself. And that is fine, but it gets a lot better when you have a watchOS 4.1 and you can stream. That's in beta yet, so that wasn't mentioned in my review, and it's not really fair to go into that because that's a product that's going to be forthcoming. But Apple says it's going to be coming next month in October. But for now, um, you can have your music locally stored on your watch. You can go for a run, which is stuff that you could do before. But the difference is now you're you're in touch, you're connected. So, um, you know, I went for a run, uh, well, I've gone for a few since I got the watch, but um, you get a text message or you get a phone call and you're no longer missing it. You no longer find out when you get back from your run. It's just there. It's with you. You get it. 
So things that you would do before, like, for example, you would get a text message on your watch and you would look down and you would see that you have a message. And if you wanted to respond to that message, it was convenient to be able to look down at your wrist and, and see that. But it wasn't particularly convenient unless you were in a situation where you couldn't access your phone or it was rude to access your phone. It wasn't really convenient to just use the watch because you have your phone on you. Your phone has a bigger screen. It's more luxurious. It gives you the opportunity to type and do those sorts of things that you can't do on a small screen on your wrist. Um, the, the difference now is when your phone is gone, you no longer have that ability. And so you're kind of in a way forced to use the watch. And it, it, it's not it's not a bad experience. You have options. So like texting is probably the, the biggest thing, I think, for a lot of people that they're going to really enjoy with this because people don't make a lot of phone calls anymore. It's mostly texting, getting messages, that sort of stuff. So you can dictate with Siri. You can uh, scribble on there, uh, write uh, letters, or they have quick responses that you can scroll through just to tap on. And obviously, you're not going to want to... Um, have a long conversation with a little watch like that, or, or as Steve Jobs said when the iPad first came out, write war and peace on it. Uh, but it is really convenient for, you know, you just raise your wrist, talk to Siri, uh, send out a, a text message, and then just lower your wrist and go. And it just kind of gets out of the way. So, you know, I went for a run and I got a message and then I responded to it real quick. Yesterday I was out running some errands that you don't even have to be exercising and I just didn't bring my phone with me. And you dictate the response, and then if you um, have AirPods in, it's even better. Um, and now, because Siri actually talks to you, you don't even have to stare at your wrist to make sure that it's done or that, that it's sent or whatever. It just talks to you, and, and you can lower your wrist and go back to what you're doing. So it just kind of gets out of your way. And so when you want to do things like send a text or make a phone call or, or do whatever, um, you can do it. It's not necessarily going to be as um, easy of an experience as it would be on a phone, but it's certainly much easier because it's just on you. You don't have to worry about it. You're not like obsessively checking it. It's just it's kind of like technology that gets out of the way. And I find it interesting that this is happening now as the phones are getting bigger and Apple's kind of moving away from one handed use. And it almost feels like this is Apple's appeasement to people that don't necessarily want big phones or don't want to have their phone on them all the time. You know, and I hear from a lot of women who say things like, you know, the pockets in their pants are too small. You got to carry a purse. You can't have your phone on you, whatever. This is a great product for somebody like that, too. Not just somebody who wants to exercise or stream music or whatever. Somebody who just wants to get out of the house for three or four hours and not have their phone on them and not be checking Instagram and not have to bring a purse or a bag or a big phone or whatever. I think that there's a lot of use cases for a product like this that go beyond just the fitness and 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 that sort of stuff. Um, you know, there, the phone anxiety is a very real thing where you feel like you're you're missing out or you're um, uh, you, you know somebody may urgently be trying to reach you and you don't have your phone on you. Um, and this certainly addresses that, but uh, there's also a more practical application to it. Um, and that's even without the music streaming. And I, I think that the music streaming alone is going to be a game changer. What kind of downsides have you noticed? Is there any downside that some of our listeners should be aware of? I mean, the main thing you have to be aware of is battery life. Uh, if you were using it um, in what Apple considers to be a typical use case, which would be um, an hour or so of working out and streaming music and then you know regularly checking throughout the day. Uh, and when they say an hour of working out, they mean without your phone nearby, just on LTE. Um, that'll get you... Uh, about 18 hours of use, which is pretty good. Now, if you try to leave your phone at home all day and get an hour workout in and, you know, send texts and check the news and all that, 
you're not going to get that much. If you're doing heavy LTE use constant, you're only going to get about four hours out of the watch. So you'll get, you know, half of a workday essentially. Um, but it's, it's not meant for that. It's not the, the technology is not there. The physics of it aren't there. You know, this is something that's the size of a stack of a couple of silver dollars, really. Um, it is not meant to be an iPhone free experience. You have to connect it to your iPhone to set it up. You have to connect it to your iPhone to back it up. You can't connect it to, or set it up through your iPad or your iPod touch or your Mac. Uh, and there's a reason for that, and that's a very conscious effort by Apple to make it clear to the consumer that LTE is the ability to occasionally leave your phone behind, but not to completely ditch your phone. I mean, you can't even set this thing up without having a phone to connect it to with a phone number because it shares the phone number and has a cheaper data plan and stuff. So uh, that that is an issue that you have to be aware of. You can't think that you're going to buy this and then not have a phone or not ever use your phone. But also, uh, you have to be aware that the data plan uh, is pricey. While Apple did a pretty good job of pricing the watch itself, um, it's only um, uh, $30 more for the LTE version than last year's pricing for the Series 2 without LTE. Uh, the carriers uh, were not so generous, and they are charging $10 a month in the U.S. for data access, which I think is pretty exorbitant. I think it should be closer to $5 a month. Tell me about... So, so first of all, actually, I was going to ask you, are, personally, I mean, I understand that you have this one for review purposes and so on, but are you going to use it and pay the $10 a month? I am, yes. I, I like to run outside, um, and I like having all of my music on me, and uh, I like the idea of just leaving my phone behind. Sometimes I'm going out, and I just don't want to have my phone. I don't want to be distracted. I don't want to be bugged. I, you know, I'm on my computer all day for work. I'm staring at my phone when I'm not at my computer, constantly doing that kind of stuff. There's something freeing about just not having your phone on you. And to me, that's worth the $10 a month, and that's not even for exercising. But when I run outside, I've been using just my watch for a while, um, and it's nice. Uh, it, it's it's liberating in some ways. Uh, the only thing that I really found in using just the watch without the phone that I missed was uh, not having a camera. And, and I'm not saying that they should put a camera on the watch. I don't know if that's the right way to go. It could be creepy. It could be ugly on the watch. It could be cumbersome. It could be unusable. Yeah. I mean, there. how do you, I mean, how do you, for example, uh, distinguish between whether it's on the left or right wrist um, and which direction the camera would face if it were a forward-facing camera, that, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, maybe the solution is an optional smart band or something that theoretical down the road. Who knows? But... Um, as it stands right now, you know, in my couple days of using it and just going out and not bringing my phone, I could text, I could get phone calls, I could check and get, you know, news alerts, uh, emails, you name it. Everything that I would want from a phone, short of just wasting time on Facebook or Snapchat, I could do on my watch and I could do it pretty efficiently, more efficiently than you'd think. Um, you know, I don't really use Siri a lot on my phone. But I use it all the time on my watch. I use it to control HomeKit. I use it to send texts. Um, I use it to initiate, you know, music playback stuff like that. Um, so I just find that it just works better when it's on your wrist, and it's, it just makes for it more sense. It's more convenient. Um, a lot of times, talking to your phone feels a little bit unnatural when you can just pick it up and type. Um, so those types of things, having Siri on the go. Um, ha getting notifications, getting all that stuff, everything that I wanted from my phone for the most part I could do with the exception of taking pictures. And so, I mean, I guess 
if the inevitability of this is a device that is completely separate from the phone and you can leave your phone at home all day and it gets enough battery life and all that, then I think at that point you inevitably have to add a camera. Um, I don't know how you do that in a way that doesn't become unworkable, but I, that's a future challenge for Apple to figure out. I, I don't know that that's something that's going to happen in the near future either. Um, so as, I don't mean to say all that is a it's a must-have for the product or anything like that. It's just more future think on my part. But uh, yeah, I, I think that as it is right now, you know, one, one of the things I wonder about when I recommend products is like, is this something that you could keep for two, three, four, maybe even five years and be happy with it. I think that if you know that you're not going to be able to ditch your phone completely uh, and you're okay with that, I think that this is a very mature product. The, the new processor is fast. The capabilities are there. Um, there's a lot to like about this. I'm, I'm very, very happy with the new Apple Watch. So how has it been using the beta? So watchOS 4.1 beta came out this week. I have to warn everybody... If you install a watch beta and things go wrong, as they have for multiple people on our staff, including you, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, you have to mail the... You can't reset it on your own. It's not like your phone where you can just reset it, roll it back, whatever. You have to uh, take your phone hardware, put it in the mail, ship it off to Apple, wait a few days for them to fix it, and then send it back to you. That's because there's no diagnostic port on the watch for you to access as a user. There's no place for you to do it. They have to take it and do it. Uh, so I say that because don't install betas unless you really know what you're getting into because you could screw it up. I do this for a living. I have uh, to write especially it. On a, especially on the watch where there's no way that you can recover it by yourself. Yes. So I took the plunge um, because obviously I'm excited about the ability to stream music and also need to be able to write about it for work and stuff. So I wouldn't usually install a beta one, but I went for it. And thankfully, um, fingers crossed going forward, but uh, it installed okay and it works. So I went out yesterday um, and I ran some errands um, and I uh, was streaming music while I did that. Worked with it like a charm. And then I went for a run last night, uh, about three miles um, and it was about a, cause it, I had to recharge it or, or put it on the charger while it was updating. So I guess it was like halfway through the day. It was topped off at hundred percent. By the end of the day, my battery was at 52%. And that included a little over a half hour of running. Um, and about, you know, another half hour to 45 minutes of running errands, um, without my phone on me, LTE use, music streaming, sent a few texts, uh, that sort of stuff. Uh, but what was really exciting to me is the music streaming was rock solid. I went out of my way to pick albums that uh, were not synced to my watch and I hadn't listened to in a while, so I knew that it was going to be 100% dependent on LTE to to get that stuff going. And as soon as the music started playing, didn't cut out on the Bluetooth end, didn't cut out on the data end. Um, it sounded as good as you would imagine. It was absolutely rock solid perfect. It didn't cut out on me once. Not once. Not once. And, and I've had a lot of people ask me things about... Um, connectivity because when the watch reviews first came out uh, there were some people that had issues because of uh, public wi-fi networks and this is a bug in the apple watch that apple has said they're going to fix with a software update i have not run into this issue because i went through a purge of all public wi-fi networks before i even set up my watch because i was aware of the bug but basically what this means is if you connect to you know starbucks wi-fi or mcdonald's or your local coffee shop or whatever um, that requires a, a screen to bypass in order to get onto the Wi-Fi. Um, this information is shared from your phone with your watch. So your watch is going to defer 
to Wi-Fi networks when it can find them because the LTE battery life is so poor. Uh, the problem is it doesn't know when there's a portal to access, and because there's no browser on the watch itself, there's no way for you to get past that portal, the gateway. So the watch connects to a Wi-Fi and then hangs onto it even though it has no data. So uh, then what happens is your phone's away and you don't really understand why your watch isn't working and why you don't have a connection. Uh, I don't see this being a big issue going forward because Apple has said they're going to put out a software update and I imagine it'll probably arrive pretty soon and that it will address that bug and that'll be the end of that and no one will remember this. But other than that, um, the LTE connections have been fine for me. I haven't had any issues. Anywhere I get reception with my phone, I get reception with my watch. Um, I think the the general rule I would say is if you have two or more bars on your phone, you're going to get a connection on your watch and it's going to be fine. Obviously, if you don't have a connection with your phone in that area, it's not like the, the watch can make up for poor areas of LTE reception. You know, if AT&T is doing a bad job, that's not the watch's fault. What has been the best improvement? What's been the best thing about this? I mean, I think um, the fact that you can now access Siri on the go because of LTE. I mean, obviously, everything that you can do before you can now do on the go with LTE. Um, but, you know, simple things like checking sports scores and stuff. Um, it's nice to be able to do that and not have your phone on you. And it's nice to have Siri talk to you because, like I said before, you dictate a text, you then lower your wrist and you know that it's sent. And you Before, A, the processor was slow and B, Siri didn't talk. So you have to kind of hold your wrist up and stare and give it like a one Mississippi, two Mississippi before you got a response. Uh, now you can just, it just gets out of the way. It's like, all right, I've dictated it, put your wrist down. And a lot of times before you've even fully lowered your wrist, it's already sent it and, and telling you that everything's cool, but it just feels good to be able to uh, get it out of the way. I've said this so many times here on the podcast, the best wearable devices are ones that just get out of the way. And yes, you can interact with the watch. And yes, the experience is, is pretty good when you interact with the watch. But uh, the best situations are where you just kind of raise your wrist, get what you want, and then lower it and then get on with your day. Um, it's a small wearable device for a reason. It's not a big screen. It's not meant to watch YouTube videos or anything like that. Awesome. Neil Hughes, everybody, the editor-in-chief of AppleInsider.com. Where can people find you? Of course, I just said it, didn't I? <laughs> you can find me at appleinsider.com and you can uh, follow me on Twitter at this is Neil. And I would encourage everybody to check out our uh, iPhone 8, iPhone 8 Plus reviews from Dan, the Apple Watch review from myself. And then Mike uh, has our Apple TV 4K review, which will be running uh, very soon. So keep your eyes peeled for that. I've been using the Apple TV for a few days now. Um, and it's pretty nice, um, and I think uh, people will be pretty happy with that upgrade if they have a 4K TV. Excellent. We look forward to all of those. And I want to ask our, our listeners, if you have used the Apple Insider app on the App Store, please feel free to go ahead and leave us a review for it. If you haven't used it yet, now is a perfectly good time to download it and check it out and stay up to date on all of your Apple news. And while you're at it, you can leave us a nice review on the podcast on iTunes. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week.